0: Last week in the series uh, that Todd initiated um, and Alan reminded us of this morning on the theme of an unhurried Lent, uh, he preached on the confusion that noise brings into our lives when we fail to stop and listen and hear what God is trying to tell us. Well, this week, Todd had in mind, as you've already discovered, the uh, theme of desire, how desires can lead to uh, a frenetic Life that is disoriented. I was looking forward to sharing with you a nice abstract discussion of desire. But the gospel text wouldn't let me. The sermon is going to meddle with us. It'll be a critique of our culture and maybe of us who participate in it. But if that's the case, blame Jesus, not me. The trouble with Jesus is that he gets specific Because in our gospel lesson, you begin to realize that he's talking about our consumption. Now, that's a word that at one time referred to a life-threatening illness. But now, it has everything to do with the culture that is shaping us in our habits. And that's important to realize because if we're going to talk about desire, then we have to understand that desire is a product of Societies uh, pulls on us, of culture's pull on us. Desires, they aren't simply self-generated. And in our cultural situation, that's a profound realization. The Roman Catholic theologian, William Cavanaugh, put it this way. Consumer culture is one of the most powerful systems of formation in the contemporary world, arguably more powerful than Christianity. Jesus put it in terms of treasure, our goals, because our goals become our gods. They determine the trajectory of our lives. Another way of understanding what he was saying about that weird stuff about the eye, you know, it may have caused you to wonder, what is going on there? I think he he was saying that being sound in your goals will determine your life. If your goal is sound, your life will light up. If it's wrong, your life's going to end up in darkness. So our goal, the purpose for which our lives are shaped, determines what we will desire. But the problem with our consumer culture isn't really that um, we desire too much, but it's that we desire what we desire without any idea of why we want what we want. You know, 10% of the US population are shopaholics. It's an addiction that is fed by our exposure to up to 5,000 ads per day. That's up, by the way, from about 500 in the 1970s. 5,000 ads day the shopaholic buys something anything to fill the hole that is this empty shrine and then the thing purchased turns to nothing eventually so that the consumer goes online or goes back to the mall to continue the search and the search becomes endless it becomes endless because it consumes our time and our mental effort and our spiritual uh, desires because you see The point in our consumer culture is that the pleasure comes not from possession of things. It comes from the pursuit of things. The pleasure comes from the wanting. The pleasure comes from the desire itself, and so the desire has to constantly be on the move. This consumer spirit is a restless spirit. It's a restless spirit that, uh, because our whole economy is based on dissatisfaction and detachment. Think about that. Dissatisfaction and detachment. Our economy isn't based on attachment to stuff. It's based on detachment. We aren't satisfied with the previous smartphone, so we wait in lines for hours for the next one consumption that was once a deadly sickness has now become a debilitating habit with a goal that has nothing to do with a fulfilling life. Like the kind of abundant life that Jesus promised? Uh Uh-uh. Consumerism isn't so much about having more as it is about having something else. And that's why shopping, not just buying, but shopping, is at the heart of the culture that we live in. Even Sundays have become one of the most, uh, come on the busiest shopping days of the week. For many, consumerism is just a type of spirituality, a way of looking at the world with the eye that is the lamp of the body, such that it it is deeply formative, a, a way of pursuing meaning and purpose and identity in life. I mean, think about it work becomes a commodity instead of something that we participate in the creative activity of God. In fact, we even, call, we even commodify the workers. We call them labor costs. Relationships become commodities, often at the mercy of dissatisfaction and detachment in a hookup society. Even Jesus and Christianity can become another commodity just to fulfill the individual consumer's needs who wants to get some religion. It's interesting that Jesus' words about treasure and mammon, money, uh, come right after he talks about fasting. And so he located his talk right in the context of Lent. Jesus knew that we are our bodies we are our bodies. Our bodies are the real us. We think we can be something other than what we can do and possess, but Jesus challenges that assumption. We become what we do. And so he encourages fasting because it's in fasting that we begin to realize that we begin to be free of the habits that tempt us to believe that we can secure our survival through what we possess. Through only what we consume, and then fasting also exposes those things that control us. You know, we begin to discover whom or what we are serving. But fasting also helps us to discover the gifts that make uh, our lives livable. And uh, it's it's it, it it's to learn what it means to pray, like we're going to do in a few minutes. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Not trusting in our own resources, but in the only one in whom we can really find fulfillment and contentment. You know, I, I love uh, Martin Luther's shorter catechism, where, you know, he's teaching especially children what the Lord's Prayer means. And when he gets to the petition, give us this day our daily bread. He asks, what does that mean? And here's his answer. Daily bread includes everything needed for this life, such as food and clothing, home and property, work and income, a devoted family, an orderly community, good government, favorable weather, peace and health, a good name, true friends and neighbors, and all the rest. (laughs) We're asking God to provide what we need daily. Because we really can't simply exist on what we think we can with our possessions. By situating our gospel text, Jesus put it in this context because he's telling us that we're formed in the habits of fasting and in the virtues of that prayer that we pray. That's what should shape us. And by the way, we should occasionally fast not only from food, but from other things that we consume like smartphones and the media. So if the eye isn't clear on this matter of mammon, of money, possessions, then all of our life is going to be out of focus. Following Jesus is going to require fundamental lifestyle changes because mammon, get this, mammon is not morally neutral. It is not morally neutral. It is a power that demands our allegiance And it can even cause us to be fearful, to be anxious. It trains us to see the world in a certain way. How we relate to the material world is a spiritual discipline. Jesus is saying that um, you can tell a lot about a person's relationship to God, their heart, by understanding their relationship to money and possessions. That's simply what he means when he says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Or as I heard it once said by a, uh, a young man, it takes a certain kind of person for God to trust with a lot of money. <laughs> now we often divorce, in our, even in our Christian culture, we often divorce the issue of money and possessions from our spirituality. We assume that each of those are, are in airtight compartments. They're separate. But nothing could be further from the truth. It's interesting, for instance, to know that Jesus spoke about the issue of money and possessions more than any other single issue that he spoke about. It's been estimated that nearly one-sixth of all of Jesus' teachings have to do with our money and our possessions. He knew that it was an important factor even in our relationship with God. So it makes sense that the thing we treasure the most in life is what forms our heart. Notice he didn't say where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. He said what you invest your time, your money, your energy, your thought life in, that will become your heart. That will become what you focus on. It's like this. If you grasp tightly with your hand a watch, you lose the use of that hand and and it closes to the small size of that watch. And if your heart grasps your riches and keeps them close to you, you lose the use of your heart and it will grow as small as the thing upon which it has closed itself. You can no longer truly open your heart to God and to others because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. On the other hand, if your heart is clutched around the kingdom of God and God's justice, and by the way, the word in Greek for God's righteousness is also translated justice. In my Spanish Bible, that's what it's translated as. If your heart is is grasped around God's kingdom and God's justice, you and your possessions will serve that. In fact, you'll find that your possessions will enhance your spiritual life. You'll be released from greed and anxiety and you'll experience freedom from slavery to the things that you possess because they will not possess you. All that matters to you will be the kingdom of God. And you'll be free to give away when and what God asks. You'll be investing in treasures in heaven because investments in God's kingdom and in other people's lives are the only things that you can take with you when you die. There won't be a U-Haul behind your hearse, behind the hearse at your funeral. But there might be a parade of folks whose lives have been touched by one who did not lose the use of her heart and her hands that were free to minister to others in time of need. You know, Jesus, he doesn't want disciples to join the church of Our Lady of Perpetual Acquisition. <laughs> Don't go there, says Jesus. That God is mammon. He knows that we become what we desire. We become what we love. We become what we worship. And the reality with our possessions is that the moths of nature eat them. And the rust of time corrodes them. And the thieves of humanity take them. Our stuff simply will not bring us security and fulfillment and contentment or happiness. If the possession of things brought happiness and contentment, then our U.S. society would be the happiest and the most contented age in history because there's never been such material wealth distributed over such a wide strata of society. Cars and big-screen TVs and shopping malls are everywhere. But so is dissatisfaction and boredom and unrest and suicide. We know this in our heads. Trebecca always reads my sermons before I preach them. There was a little g- girl who once said to her father, Daddy, does God tell you to preach what you say? Yes. Then why do you scratch out so much? <laughs> Trebecca does that for me. <laughs> and she wisely said, and rightly said, look, you're preaching um, to an audience that already knows this, and I know that. We know this in our heads. But the formative influences of the culture into which we will be immersed once our worship ends this morning are so subtle and pervasive that that knowledge will not save us. Knowledge alone will not save us. It will have to be formative habits that come from an alternative culture called church. You see, we were created to desire God, to thirst for God, That's what we were created for, all of us. And that's why it's so profound that earlier in Jesus' ministry, he cried out, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. All of us are invited. And that's why I think that at this table where we receive Jesus' body and Jesus' blood, that has such a profound effect on those who come up because we were created for this table We were created for Jesus. We were created to be thirsty for God. It's a thirst that we try to satisfy with so many other things in life, material possessions, sex, status, good causes, nationalism, and all those other ultimately unsatisfying elixirs. But that thirst can never be satisfied by this world and what it has to offer. It can only be satisfied by the one who made us. And then we creatures we creatures whose thirst is satisfied and refreshed by eating his body and drinking his blood will join Jesus in Jesus' thirst for others. He cried from the cross, I thirst. And his Mother Teresa said, I want to satiate the thirst of Jesus. We who have found the one who can assuage our thirst will go back into this consuming culture as we join him in his thirst for humanity. You see, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't tell us to get rid of our desires. He tells us to redirect our desires. Centuries ago, Augustine taught us that the only God can free us from bondage to false desires and move us to desire rightly. And that's exactly what we prayed for this morning in our prayer of confession. Because a slave or an addict cannot free him or herself. But the good news is that the God of grace is offering us liberation this morning. And even he even offers us a community called church that will help us to desire rightly. I know this. Because in in Monk Habits for Everyday People, I wrote about a time years ago when I raved about the features of the latest Mac computer that I coveted while a friend prepared our meal for us in her kitchen. And finally she stopped peeling the potatoes, looked up and asked me, and Dennis, how will this computer serve the kingdom of God? I never purchased that computer. (laughs) And I thank my friend for her gentle reminder. I didn't need it then. That was a time when I experienced how church could help me redirect my desires rightly. We hold each other accountable with gentleness. The key to true freedom, then, is the cultivation of the right desires because, listen, Christianity is is about restlessness. Christianity is about dissatisfaction. Christianity is about detachment, but of a wholly different sort than our consumer culture because it teaches us that the material world is good but not ultimate. So Jesus told the rich young ruler, you detach from your material goods because that goes hand in hand with attachment to me. So instead of fearing the loss of money and possessions, the psalmist this morning said to us, fear God. To help us understand what that means, because... You know, that sounds like a strange thing in some ways, right? Fear God. Deuteronomy 10 actually spells that out. That fearing God has to do with worshiping God and loving God and revering God and serving God in wholehearted obedience as people who are completely dependent on him. Maybe for some, complete dependence on God is hard to do. And so that's why the psalmist says, taste. Taste. Taste it. Try it out. Try it in your own experience. Prove it by your experience that the Lord is really good. That those who seek Yahweh above all else will lack nothing that is of ultimate significance. That it will ultimately satisfy us. Because what's at stake here is not a probability. What's at stake here is an impossibility. See, Jesus laid it on the line. You cannot... Pursue both God and mammon. He didn't say, it's highly unlikely that you could do that. You can't. It's impossible. It is impossible to do both. In fact, the warning is not unlike the one that God told Moses in Exodus 34 Stay vigilant. Don't let down your guard, lest you make covenant with people, in this case, a culture who live in the land that you are entering, and they trip you up. In fact, in Colossians, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, the only sin that Paul ever calls idolatry is greed. Greed, that's idolatry. It's worshiping another god. Our possessions and our money are in a struggle with God for our very lives. That's why Jesus is uncompromising when he says, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And by the way, I don't think that was a very good altar call. (laughs) But that's his altar call. Come follow me, give it all up. And so Jesus will tell tell us his disciples at the end of this chapter in Matthew that we should desire above all else God's kingdom and God's justice, to desire a kingdom in which all people are rightly related to God and rightly related to each other because that's what righteousness or justice is when everything is in the relationships that God intended for them to be. That's what we want to pursue. We desire what God desires. So how might we go about this in practical terms this Lenten season? How can we dethrone money and possessions and put the kingdom of God and God's justice in first place? How might we replace fears about our money and possessions with the fear of God? How might we invest in treasures in heaven this Lent? Let me just throw out some suggestions. We might turn our homes into sites of production, of productivity, as they used to be, and not just sites of consumption, the kind of productivity like making bread or making music together as ways to reshape how we approach the material world. We might be more appreciative and attentive to those who labor to produce what we consume because we know that our spiritual condition is reflected in the way that we treat the people who serve us. Person on her way up to Starbucks ladder once said that in our company and said, "I can tell a person's spiritual condition by the way they treat the people who serve them." Remember that next time you're at Starbucks. We might buy piles of gift certificates at McDonald's and distribute them to homeless people that we encounter every day. We could help our children recognize the media's attempts to connect status and prestige with commercial products. Or maybe we just might be more respectful of our environment that we clutter with our consumptive waste and reduce, reuse, and recycle. And maybe just, maybe just borrow or buy Richard Foster's Freedom of Simplicity for some of our Lenten reading, a book that's filled with many more practical suggestions. I just want to say this that these kind of suggestions are about our spirituality. They're not just about a lifestyle. They're about our spirituality. Well, whatever it's going to be, I encourage you just for a couple of moments here, take a few moments to reflect on your desires in the context of our commercialized culture that we will encounter when we walk out of those doors. And perhaps think of just one way that you can dethrone money and possessions this Lenten season in order to put first the kingdom of God and God's justice in this world.